This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, we definitely want to talk about the day's jobs news and also the week's news overall, the unrest across the country, what's been going on in the nation's capital with our next guest. We call him because he is a friend of our show. Joining us once again is Chris Liu, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under the Obama administration. He is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, and he joins us once again on the phone from Charlottesville, Virginia. Chris, um, we are delighted to have you back with us. Um, I wish the backdrops were different, certainly when you think about the week this past week. But let's start with what many are calling is the good news, and that is the labor front. Um, How did you read the numbers? Because it certainly was a (laughs) shocker for everyone. I mean, our survey of economists, we, we talked to a lot of them. Everybody got it wrong, certainly the trend line. So, you know, you, we've been doing these calls for, God, years together. And i mm-hmm. got to tell you, this is one of the most head-scratching numbers I have seen because everyone was off. And it's also at odds with all of the other data we've seen, uh, especially the uh, weekly jobless claims. And so um, I, here's what I would probably say about this. It, it does suggest that uh, the worst may be over. Um, I would caution people about reading too much into this um, when you kind of dig deep into the notes of uh, the release, uh, you see some you see some potential red flags about uh, the response rates uh, in terms of collecting data. You see that um, some people may have been misclassified as uh, employed when they really should have been unemployed, and so the actual rate is probably unemployment rate. They say is probably three percent higher, so about sixteen percent. But unquestionably. Um, and, and we'll obviously have to look at revisions down the road. Uh, but unquestionably, it seems like the worst is over. Now, how quickly the bounce back, I think, is still uh, left uh, unclear at this point. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here. You can't see me, obviously, Chris. I, I continue to shake my head, as as everybody yeah. does. And it was interesting. We, I don't know if you heard it, but we even played like a little ad and promo, uh, pulling some sound from our anchors who are not easily surprised this morning, sort of soaking uh, all of this in. So, I mean, I guess as you as you do look at it with a much more studied eye than than certainly I have, what does it say about policy moving forward if you're sitting um, in the administration right now? What do you do? What do you not do at this point? So I would caution people about making uh, premature, um, uh, taking premature victory laps and saying we don't need any more economic relief. What Mm -hmm. also may have happened here is um, the, the lowest hanging fruit, the easiest easiest people to rehire got rehired, that next set of people will, I think, be much harder. I mean, we just simply look at, like, the, the, the announcements that come out from airlines and hotels and everything in travel and tourism and retail, and you're, you, if you just add it up, it's thousands and thousands of layoffs, and, and those layoffs may be permanent layoffs. And so, again, I'm, I'm just sort of still not quite figured, sure what to make of this, but my concern is that if we take our foot off the accelerator 
in terms of relief, whatever recovery we're experiencing will slow down. And we know that there's a next wave of layoffs coming, and that's state and local government employees. And if you want to find a, um, a dark spot in this uh, report, it's the fact that a million and a half government employees lost their jobs in the last two months. And we know that as states are trying to you know, start their fiscal years on July 1, many of them are running billion-dollar deficits. And the only way they can close that uh, is by laying off teachers and police and firefighters. And so I would push forward on more relief, whether it is you know, extension of small business loans, whether it is enhanced unemployment, because I don't think we're out of the woods. Well, and I do wonder, too, Chris, how we slide back. You know, before we started talking with you, before this interview, we talked about what's going on with black unemployment, 16.8% rate for black Americans versus that moved up versus a rate ticking down for white Americans to 12.4%. The difference between the two rates, once again, swelling. We saw that in the last recession. You know, I do wonder, especially against the backdrop of this past week, that if we're trying to lift people up, I do worry if the economic momentum is not there when we get on the other side of this, what happens to those that were already vulnerable? Yeah, and that's a fantastic point. And it's not just the past week, but it's uh, the past couple of months with the pandemic Mm -hmm. has exposed so many systemic racial inequities. And we know that when economic times are bad, um, African-Americans, other communities of color are more likely to become unemployed. Uh, They have a harder time getting rehired. They also have uh, less savings, and so uh, they don't have as much of a cushion. And so um, we should, I think, you know, shine a light on these numbers and the fact that they're going in the opposite direction uh, as white unemployment numbers. Yeah, I mean, the what has been exposed structurally, I, I think we continue to marvel is the wrong word, but you know, the, the data are just stunning as you look at all of it. And as you say, between the pandemic and then this most recent crisis, you know, sort of forcing uh, what I think we're continuing to call some very uncomfortable conversations around how long this has been going on and what the ramifications are of all these uh, economic levers that either have been pulled or haven't been pulled and where we go from here. Chris Liu is going to stick with us. We have a lot more to talk to him about, including the notion of the government's response to everything that we've seen. We've talked to him a little bit in the past couple months about what's been going on with the pandemic, but we also know that the government has had to respond to this crisis of Mm -hmm. civil and civic unrest. Carol, and I do wonder, especially given the economic underpinnings, as we were just talking about with this, uh, what he makes of all that. Well, and I do wonder, too, like he understands the government from being inside and how he sees it. Is this All three branches, we should point out. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It's a great point, Jason. And I do wonder, functioning or not functioning, how he sees it, um, because he has a really, really unique perspective. Let's get back to our conversation with Chris Liu, University of Virginia Miller Center, former member of the Obama administration, very senior level in the Labor Department. And and Chris, you know, having worked, as we said, across all branches of the government, I do wonder what you make of the role that the government has played, not so much in the medical crisis, but in this social, cultural, political crisis that we find ourselves engulfed in over the past two weeks. It's so much pain, so much anger in in many cases, and so many big questions being raised. What's the right role of government here? Well, look, um, I I was listening to Senator uh, uh, 
Cory Booker today, and he, I think, made an important point, which is that government can't change people's attitudes, but we can change how they act out in good or bad ways. And uh, certainly what this has highlighted is with respect to um, uh, the, the police law enforcement's relationship to communities of color, uh, that needs to be changed. And during the Obama administration, uh, we convened a task force on 21st century poli- uh, policing. It um, had a 100-page report. It was worth reading. Um, there were some great recommendations that were adopted by local police forces, uh, and that needs to continue. But I think we also need to recognize more broadly, as we said in the earlier segment, there are so many systemic uh, economic in- inequities that have been exposed, you know, jobs, health care, education, that just need to be addressed. Um, and, you know, we in the United States right now are not particularly good at dealing with long-term problems. We can sort of rally together when there's a crisis moment, but then we kind of forget and lose interest again. So I hope this moment, to the extent something good comes out of it, leads to kind of an understanding that we need to do more from a, a policy perspective. Right, because you know what we do? We we create policy we create a lot of laws there's this great column by bloomberg opinion columnist stephen law uh, stephen carter excuse me at uh, yale law school and he talks you know chris specifically about having too many laws and those are laws that police have to legally enforce and just this whole idea that the fewer the laws the fewer the interactions between citizen and enforcer this, these are his words and the fewer the interactions between citizen and enforcer the fewer the occasions for the interaction to turn violent and i do wonder if we've kind of overlawed society i understand we have to have laws um but have we overdone it yeah no i think it's an important point i mean you know when you look at uh, local police departments that have adopted more of a community policing um model that have retrained their law enforcement um, and that really kind of get to foster relationship, um, they're able to withstand these kinds of crises in a way um, that other communities where there's so much more distrust between uh, law enforcement and people uh, aren't able to do. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think, look, we need to, inf- we, need to <laughs> we need to stop crime. We have laws we need to enforce, uh, but we need to completely rethink that relationship right now. And so from a labor perspective, what's something that we can think about? I mean, you know, setting the jobs number aside, but those structural problems, how do we chip away at them? And unfortunately, we only have a minute for you to solve this entire problem, Chris. No pressure, Chris. No, no, I think this is the problem. I mean, I think what we learned out of the Great Recession was, um, as I said, so many communities get left behind in a time of recession. They're the last one to recover. Uh, we're going to be digging out of this recession from years and years to come. We need to ensure that people not just get back to work, but get back to good jobs that allow them to raise families, send their kids to college, and and buy homes. And and again, you know, it's it's job training, it's raising the minimum wage, it's better labor standards, um, and, and it's just better opportunities because we need to understand that our economy is changing, and that means a different kind of workforce that economy. So that's just not for African Americans. That's frankly for all workers. Mm-hmm. Tall task, for sure. Uh, Really good to spend some time with you, as always. Uh, Chris Liu, he is our go-to voice. Uh, I look forward to talking with him every month um, because whether it is a blockbuster number or a number that, you know, 
forces us to put our head in our hands, Carol. Mm -hmm. uh, he always brings a uh, very relevant perspective and insights and both historical and, and forward-looking that I think we both appreciate. And I think, Jason, like you, you rightfully pointed out that, you know, he's worked in all branches of the government. He's now in academia. So he's seen the world from a lot of different perspectives and talked to a lot of people from those different walks of life. And I think, you know, the broader is, the broader that your perspective is, you can bring so much more to the conversation, which I think is what we need so much at this time. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week, Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. Well, professor of law and Yale Law School, uh, uh, professor of law, I should say, at Yale Law School and Bloomberg Opinion contributor Stephen Carter. He's writing for Bloomberg Business Week this week. It's a column you can find online on the terminal in the magazine. Is looking at the protests in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd and comparing them to the civil rights movement and protests of the 1960s. It's a must read. Jason and I have been talking about this and looking forward to this conversation. Stephen joining us on the phone from Connecticut, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. And Joel, let's let's first get to you. Professor Carter's column, it fits into a politics takeover, section takeover on the protests in the magazine this week. Oh, we don't have Joel. Forgive me. Um, Professor Carter, let me bring you in. Um, we are delighted to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about the column that you wrote this week, because I do think, you know, for those that, that do remember the protests, you know, we're trying to make the comparisons. What's similar? You know, what's different? What have we learned? What changes? Uh, well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me. And this is a really important topic. A lot of people have been asking is it different this time? Because we see protests a lot. We see waves of protests after various things happen uh, in this country that I hope we all dearly, dearly love. Uh, but they always seem to peter out. And so people are wondering, does this signal some deep and fundamental change? And that's the same question people were asking in the 60s and 70s. Would the civil rights protests of the 60s and the anti-war protests of the early 70s that kind of uh, rolled into each other. They were happening around the same time, and by the early 1970s, when you had literally tanks in the streets in Washington, D.C., people were wondering, was this a real uprising? Was it a real revolution? Was this different from all the other protests uh, that we'd seen? And people are asking the same question today, and that's what I was getting at, the similarities and differences between the two eras. And so... You know, you go through, I mean, part of what is so powerful about your column, Professor Carter, is, you know, you list example after example after example that are very recent. And, and I do think that that's one of the things that's most most troubling to us. And, you know, and I say that as, as someone who grew up in, in Atlanta and, and around there and, and know yeah. so much about, you know, the history of John Lewis and Andy Young and, and all of those people who did that very important work. And, and I have to think that, that people like that and kindling people like you look at this and just say, I, I can't believe this. So, <laughs> so what are we... So what well, do well, let, we me, do? Let, me, let me be clear. I, I am not one of these people who says that nothing has changed in right. America. A lot of things have changed. Sure. It's, a, it's a far better country than it was 50 years ago. I can remember so when I was a kid uh, on my way to school in Washington, D.C. during the 1968 riots after the death of Mar the murder of Martin Luther King, uh, that literally when I got to the, to the corner where I was going to catch the bus in Washington, D.C. on Wisconsin Avenue, there were three National Guardsmen. Uh, with uh, carrying rifles, uh, standing at the bus stop, looking at me, this black kid, uh, very uh, uneasily, although, of course, nothing obviously obviously happened. We're a very different country now yeah. than we were then. Uh, one of the big differences, I think, is that in the 1960s, when people thought things were coming apart, that, of course, helped elect Richard Nixon, who 
ran as the guardian of law and order. It was key to his argument that liberals, in effect, the Democratic Party, in his, in, in his rhetoric, was letting the country fall apart and letting all this happen. He would restore order, and that was largely what he ran on uh, after the 1968 riots. And I think those riots really did help elect him, maybe made the difference uh, in electing him in 1968. When he ran for re-election in 1972, the great gift that he got was the huge uh, anti-war riots, because his, his popularity was flagging a bit, but the riots, uh, the I'm sorry, the anti-war demonstrations right. lifted his popularity, and of course he ended up winning uh, in a landslide. The difference today is that the simple appeal to law and order by politicians, say by President Trump, for example, isn't really enough. Of course, no one wants disorder in the streets. No one wants violence. No one wants rioting. No one's property destroyed. But simply saying that needs to stop isn't enough anymore. Mm -hmm. we're, we're in a country now that wants to hear something other than we're going to make these people pay. This is a country that really is starting to care in a deep way about racial injustice and politicians now to succeed are going to have to address that in very serious and, I would say, empathetic terms. Our technology is working. Joel Weber is with us, Bloomberg Businessweek uh, editor of the magazine. And, Joel, I feel like Professor Carter's column fits into, you know, such an important part of the politics section takeover uh, that looks at the protests. Well, I have to say, Professor Carter, you know, when, when you filed your draft uh, and I was reading it and I read – uh, other things you've written on qualified immunity, but then you know you round this corner, and and I just thought it was amazingly eloquent, uh, and it really like was one of these pieces this week that I read it, and I, you know I've read so much, but like this one was I think one of the ones that stuck with me the most, which was that you round this corner and go, you know you can you can you know basically think about this through a lens of cops and and all that, but like you know there's laws that are being written that are telling the cops what to do. And, you know, if we have too many laws, then obviously the where we're going to see conflict, maybe maybe that um, escalates. And in effect, like we have too many laws on the books. And, you know, I just thought that that was just as a citizen in this country. That was a take I had not heard from anybody. And I, I want to know from you, like at, we as a society, I mean, like, how do we how do we r wrestle with that? How do we make fewer laws? Because that seems to be one of the things that we try and do every time we elect someone. Well, I do think that we have too many laws, and it's not a liberal or conservative issue. Some years ago, the Congressional Research Service was asked to count how many federal laws there were, and they couldn't do it because there are so many federal statutes that basically allow administrative agencies to create crimes. We have legislators at both the state and local level who like to show how serious they are about something by turning it into a crime. But if you're going to have crimes then you're going to have enforcement. And if you're going to have enforcement, a lot of enforcement, there are more and more flashpoints where terrible things can happen. And so people forget that when Eric Garner uh, was killed by New York City police in 2014, which, which sparked the beginning of these years that we've had of protests and fury um, in the African community, my community, about police killings, when Eric Garner was killed, the crime for which they were trying to arrest him was selling Lucy's, that is, individual untaxed cigarettes. And he was, and, and that law was being enforced because business owners 
had complained, and politicians had then ordered the police to crack down on this issue. But for that crackdown, he would still be alive. But the crackdown was the issue of whether you can sell cigarettes individually untaxed or not, which does not seem to me to be the sort of thing in which the state should invest right. a lot of violent enforcement effort. Well, it's just an amazing uh, just an amazing look, and, and we're so delighted to have you here. We hope you will come back, uh, Professor Carter, because as Joel is, I, I'm a huge longtime fan of yours. Uh, I've read so much of your work uh, and, and really admire uh, everything you're saying. And I'm just going to say, there's two columns that we were talking about, and I'll put them about, both out on Twitter. One is in the magazine about the wrong reach of the law, which is what Joel was addressing. And then there was what we initially kicked off about talking about what's going on today versus the 60s protests. So our thanks to Stephen Carter and to Joel Weber. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's do a little uh, Business Week economics here. Uh, the economic story of the day, it's clear. It's the jobs report. And as I said at the top of the show, quoting my esteemed co-host, Carol Masser, WOA. I mean, there's no other way. It's like double WOA or like WOA to the infinity. I don't know exactly how you would characterize it, Carol. Yeah, exactly. Um, but we want to make some sense of beyond. it. Exactly. With Yelena Shalecheva, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. All right, Yelena, we were all blown away by this number what happened blown away uh probably it was uh, better than expected on many fronts not just the headline payrolls number it includes uh a decline in the unemployment rate uh, a significant rebound in the diffusion index which uh, uh, reflects the breadth of uh, uh industries hiring but it's by no means the time for a victory lap I think uh, that, you know, instead, the latest statistics highlight the importance of a timely and sizable policy response and the need for additional fiscal measures in the second half of the year, um, probably, again, directly aiming at supporting the labor market. So uh, I think that this report is a clear example that uh, policymakers did make a difference. Uh, they responded in a timely and an aggressive uh, uh, way, both the fiscal authorities and monetary policy authorities, and that's what's required uh, going forward. The economic fundamentals are not uh, uh, anywhere near um, the, the levels that prevailed before the crisis, and unfortunately, uh, the economic recovery is unlikely uh, to continue, oper- like, continue uh, by itself. I think it still requires some support from policymakers. So are you saying that, okay, wait, so the trend line's getting better, but unless we continue to get relief, it's not going to stay that way? Correct. Okay. Uh, if, we, if you look at uh, uh, the wage income growth, uh, the, the level of wages actually in the economy, there was a tremendous, a huge decline in, in that level uh, since the crisis started. And wages never got back to the level where they were before the crisis. So in order to compensate for that uh, gap between the previous trend and uh, the current level of wages, uh, the economy still requires uh, some support in in the way of uh, jobless benefits, uh, uh, PPP programs, and such. 
So I think that that is an important message to policymakers, that they did something right, but they need to do more. So what do we look at next, Yelena, to get a sense of how much of this was, to use a technical term, just a little funky? And what do we see that would bolster the case and lead to someone taking a, a victory lap? Like, what else do we need to see to give us confidence here? I think, uh, uh, Jason, you, you put it exactly right. So we cannot be confident uh, just simply because of one uh, good jobs report. We need to look at the different, uh, different uh, measures, uh, including jobless claims, which uh, basically are telling us that things are not as rosy as the payrolls report is suggesting. And uh, we need to look at uh, other measures of uh, the labor market. And particularly, uh, we need to look at uh, the pace of income growth and wage growth. So until we see that uh, is on a very strong upward trajectory, I wouldn't be, um, uh, you know, saying, okay, that the crisis is over and everything is uh, great again. All right. So economist... Do you think uh, economists in general are going to have a better time calling the June jobs report? <laughs> and you know uh, I, we love you, but I'm just trying to understand because, right, <laughs> they got it so wrong. <laughs> okay. Well, I think everybody uh, was really surprised by that uh, number. And, uh, you know, it, it was very much um, an objective thing to to expect another another decline based on the data available. So we, we don't really make up the numbers. We look at uh, different indicators, including uh, jobless claims, and they were suggesting a decline. I think the the, um, the positive numbers can continue in, in June and perhaps in July, but let's see what happens after all this uh, uh, augmented measures of uh, support in the labor market expire and uh, whether we'll get another... Um, another stimulus package. Yeah. So what happens then? And uh, whether, you know, aggregate demand will be strong enough to support further growth in the labor market. Elena, what kind of visibility do you feel like you have right now? I mean, truthfully, like, is it the next couple of weeks, the next month, the next few months? In terms of uh, what to expect for the economy or? Yeah. Yeah. Just statistics in general. The economy certainly key and, of course, the labor market. I think uh, we will uh, continue to get a lot of uh, different signals. And mm. uh, we will get some rebound in terms of sentiment measures, simply because they were at the very bottom. But uh, some you know, rebound is necessary given uh, the economy is reopening. Um, I think that uh, we will get a terrible GDP report that will uh, show a huge decline in terms of uh, GDP growth. And I will stick to our forecast of negative seventy, negative thirty-seven percent in terms of GDP growth in the second quarter. Oh my the God! Per- wait, wait, just say that again. Yes. Negative thirty, so down thirty-seven percent. Yes, and uh, that is uh, an annualized uh, quarterly yeah. number. So I think that uh, today's report confirmed this forecast because aggregate hours work declined by more than that. They declined uh, by 46% uh, percent annualized uh, right. based on uh, the two months of uh, data for the second quarter. The question is about how uh, big of a recovery we will see 
in the second half of the year. Well, let's see if the economy bounces back like the stock market, right? Yeah, if only. (laughs) All right, Yelena Shalecheva, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Uh, Always appreciate catching up with you, senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Well, let's turn to one of our go-to voices, really has been our go-to voice on the virus, I have to say. We're so grateful to him because he has been, as we've said, on our air before, really on the front lines of this here in the New York City area. We're talking about Dr. Ian Lusbader over at NYU Langone's Medical Center. Uh, Ian, great to have you back with us. Always a pleasure. Thanks, uh, Jason. Hope you are well. Hope Carol is well. Hi. Uh, We're doing okay. We're doing okay. It's been quite a week, uh, as we know it has been for you. A heavy week, to say the least. As we look ahead to next week, though, uh, it's going to be a a very important day in New York City, where you are, because we're going to start to see the beginning of reopening. This is the last region of our state, which is a big one. to start to reopen a little bit, what do we need to be thinking about as that happens, Ian? Well, you know, I think this is unknown territory. This has been certainly a busy week for, uh, as every week has been, for uh, COVID-19 and uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2. Evidence on some studies that we had talked about hydroxychloroquine and and certain uh, susceptibility. Some groups may be more susceptible. But when it and we can talk about that later. But when it comes uh, to talking about returning to work, I think uh, we can only do what we can do, namely uh, do our best with social distancing. It's hard to imagine uh, getting people in crowded restaurants or or um, cubicles and in offices. Uh, but I think eventually that has to happen, even as more people work from home. And I think that will kind of slow the the exposure. But I think there's a lot of evidence that masks seem to work very mm-hmm. well. Not perfectly. You know, we know those uh, those viral particles are are tiny. The N95 masks would be ideal. Still a bit of a shortage on those. But uh, if more people had those available, I think uh, there'd be a lot more reassurance. Uh, they are a bit uncomfortable, uh, certainly a little less airflow than the regular surgical masks, probably a little more effective as well. But I think uh, we need to do the experiment. I think we need to get people back. Certainly we're seeing big crowds and demonstrations, and there's a big concern about perhaps, you know, an earlier second wave of the virus. Yeah, I do feel like that's going to be, you know, I do feel like, Ian, that's going to be pretty telling, um, you know, two weeks from now, whether or not we see another wave or an outbreak. Exactly, exactly. Uh, We certainly see in the hospitals that the number of new cases are dropping dramatically. Patients are beginning uh, to come back with non-COVID, heart disease and liver disease and et cetera. We're we're certainly seeing that in the office as well. Is it just that because people have been good about staying home, social distancing, wearing masks, that the virus is not finding any place to go? Very good question. Uh, two questions, really. One is why? Why is the uh, why are the number of cases dropping? And I certainly think uh, the social distancing and and a little bit of herd immunity is beginning to take some effect on that. Uh, viruses often do uh, diminish over time. The curves. Certainly, the warmer weather may play a role. We're going to have to find out in a few weeks exactly as you say, when you've got big crowds marching together, breathing heavily, 
a lot of people are exposed, even if they're wearing masks. We'll have to see if there really is a second wave that comes earlier than what we thought might happen in the fall. And if that's the case, that will certainly make people a lot more careful, I think. And, Ian, from a therapeutic and vaccine and and general sort of medical uh, perspective, what's the most important thing that you've learned this week? You know, you mentioned the hydroxychloroquine, uh, you know, that whole thing seems to have abated uh, to some extent. We're still, you know, very optimistic about a vaccine, but between vaccine and therapeutic, what's the most important thing, and antibodies for that matter, what's the, the, the most important thing we need to know? Important questions. Uh, So a lot of studies are really underway right as we speak. They include vaccine studies at a number of major medical centers. There are approximately 100 companies uh, doing vaccine development, and they vary from the messenger RNA that we talked about with Moderna, as well as adenovirus and a whole host of different platforms uh, to get antibodies. We do think many, not all viruses, when you form antibodies, seem to be protective. We're hoping that's the case. There are studies with convalescent serum that we're talking about, uh, which hopefully will be much more effective. So I think we have a little better approach for for, uh, people who who are hospitalized. And I think we still need more studies and, and really randomized, good, controlled studies for something like hydroxychloroquine, if not that, something similar that might reduce uh, the severity of the infection. Mm-hmm. Two studies that came out in the New England Journal on Lancet uh, seem to be uh, have to be retracted because the database was in question uh, and sort of the whole methodology. So I think it's very important that we don't rush to judgment, but really do what science does best, which is randomized controlled studies, even if it takes a little longer, to give doctors uh, and nurses, the staff, the information to say what seems to be the best, and, and we don't really have that yet. Right. All right. Well, uh, we count on you, as always, to keep us honest on this and look forward to catching up in the not-too-distant future, especially as New York City does start to open, because, as we've said, we know you'll be there on the front lines to give us an honest opinion of what's happening. Dr. Ian Lasbader from NYU Langone's Medical Center. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I don't want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. So delighted to have back with us um, Randy Watts. It's a great week to have him any week, but uh, especially with the moves that we've seen in the markets. He's chief investment strategist at O'Neill Global Advisors. He's on the phone in Miami. Um, Randy, it is good to have you back with us. I hope you're continuing to do okay. Uh, we are, and I hope everyone in New York is uh, is safe as well. It's uh, great to talk to you, Carol. Yeah, it, you know we're we're getting by. That's for sure. Um, I got to ask you about the markets this week. It's a pretty substantial rally again. We're now up about forty three percent from the lows on the S and P five hundred. In many ways, we were, you know regaining ground that was lost after the sell off and the shutdown of the economy. What do you make about uh, over the moves? What are the charts telling you? Well, well, technically, I mean, the market has had a really, really big move 
we had shifted the market back into uptrend back on April 2nd, around 2,500. Clearly, if you look at the S&P, it's a little extended right here. Uh, resistance should function around 3,214, which is that February uh, 2020 level. I think what we would like to see from here is for the, for the indices to either consolidate or maybe even have a little bit of a small pullback. But with regards to the S&P, we'd really like to see it stay above its 200-day average, which right now is around 3,022. And so as you look across the world, it is a complicated one, to say the least, uh, Randy. And, uh, you know, I'm also, to take a little bit of a turn here, like I'm, I'm intrigued to get your opinion in part because if I remember correctly, you were an American studies major. I mean, you understand history really, really well, and I know you apply that to your work looking at the market. I do wonder what you make of a market at a time of unbelievable unrest in the country, the political unrest, and then this backdrop of a market that goes up and up and up. And, and I think we're all trying to get our heads around it. Especially, you know, when we've had such a run-up, Randy, it's like the disconnect between Wall Street, Wall Street and what's going on in Main Street America. So I think, I think a couple of things. I think hopefully what the market is sensing is that if we look out, you know, five or ten years, we're going to be a much better place, both in terms of equality, uh, you know, both racially and hopefully also economically. Obviously, the gap uh, between the richest and the poorest Americans is something we need to try to close. I think uh, also, I think one of the trends we're going to see is some of the jobs that have moved offshore are going to come back onshore. I think that's positive for the economy. And I think the U.S. continues to be the leader in innovation, especially in places like technology and healthcare. Uh, one other point I would make is that with bond yields where they are now, you know, today the 10 years trading around 90 basis points, and the Fed, which, I'm, which we'll hear more from next week, and the Fed making it clear that they're going to keep rates very low for an extended period of time, that does make stocks more attractive on a relative valuation basis and does mean potentially that investors are willing to pay up for them. But, you know, it's interesting, too, and I'm listening to what you're saying. Like, to just go a little further, I mean, I do wonder if what's going on in the market, too, though, just reminds us of – you know, this massive divide and disconnect. I mean, so many people out there who don't get to participate in the markets. And I feel like those people who are in the markets to some extent are insulated in many ways from what's going on, you know, in broader parts of our society. And I, I don't know, I, I, I guess I, I'm just wondering how can we all be smarter and change it so that more people are participating in the wealth of society and the wealth of the financial markets? Well, I think I do think, you know, I am a capitalist and I do believe long term capitalism is the best way to increase uh, standards of living within a country. I do think there are things we can do, obviously, in terms of, you know, fiscal policy to try to uh, close again the gap between the very richest of the society and the poorest. And I think that's when I think about issues in our country, I think that's obviously one of the major ones. We've got to make uh, things a little bit more more uh, distributed uh, than they are right now. And Randy, when you think about sort of modeling out, if you can, reopening this economy and looking at data points like we're getting that we've been talking about, and I think it's especially interesting, you know, given that you're joining us from Florida, we're here in New York, as you pointed out in the tri-state area at least, you know, this is, this is uneven, and yet, um, you know, 
we do know that ultimately, in in general terms and directionally, that the country will will move as one. But how do you, I guess, how do you game that out to to some extent that you know this is a recovery that will be not just socioeconomically, but even even geographically uneven. I mean, I think it's going to be a bumpy ride from here. I, I don't I don't want anyone to forget that even though the jobs number was very, very good this this uh, day, the U.S. has still lost 18 million jobs since March. So it mm. is going to be, you know, a bumpy ride going forward from here. Unemployment right now is above 13 percent. That's higher than it got in the great financial crisis. So this is going to take uh, an amount of time to heal and fix the economy. Uh, I do think it's going to be bumpy. I do think it's going to be uneven. I think the market is sensing that uh, it's heading in the right direction, and we've seen the worst of the worst. Now, the question really, I think, is what is the rate of change from here as everything starts to reopen? So you did say you think we're a little extended in terms of the S&P 500. So pause, or is there some adjustments to portfolios that you think investors kind of need to be thinking about right now? Well, clearly what's happened the last three weeks is the gains have been driven by the more cyclical elements, energy, transports, industrials, and financials. Financials in particular have been helped by the fact that the yield curve has really steepened. If you look at the spread between the two and 10-year bond right now, it's about 69 basis points, which is obviously a lot higher than we've been in in quite a while. I I do think that eventually uh, some of this cyclical rotation is going to burn itself out. And when I think about where I want to be be participating over the next year, we still really do like the secular growth areas of technology, healthcare, and and retail. So uh, I think the cyclicals could have a little bit more of a move here as the economy reopens. But I do think the long-term leadership in this market is still really in the areas that America innovates in, and that's really you know technology and healthcare. Yeah, it's definitely continued to lead. We've certainly seen this story before, but it definitely continues to play that way. Randy, always good to check in with you. Randy Watts, Chief Investment Strategist at O'Neill Global Advisors. Randy joining us uh, on the phone in Miami. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.